welcome to the BCM Podcast. This is real science, real Bible, real history, and real world. My name is Steve Hall, and I'm here with my wife, Jennifer. We host this podcast, and we welcome you today. We're so glad that you are here, and we are celebrating one year of the BCM Podcast. That's hard for us to believe that it's been a year But today does begin season two. Episode one is our episode today as we press forward into more unexplored territory with our byline, which I've already said, but real science, real Bible, real history, and real world. We do welcome our listeners and thank you for tuning in to the BC Messenger. Our podcast email list has grown quite a bit in the past month. So by way of introduction for our new listeners, I thought we would just uh, give a little summary of what this podcast is all about. Steve already gave the byline, so that's cluing you in. We're on Bible, we're on history and science. Well, uh, as Steve said, we are uh, Steve and Jennifer Hall, and we are the communications team for the work here at Ardsma Research and Publishing, specifically the branch of the biblical chronologist, uh, which is the research work of my father, Dr. Gerald Ardsma, who has spent decades researching at the interface of science and the Bible. That's right. We're going to meet him in a little bit. He's going to join us today on this special anniversary edition, which is unprecedented. It's hard to get him into the (laughs) podcast studio. He's a busy man over on the research side of things. But it is our role to bring this information to you, our listeners. It branches out in many directions. It's interesting and fascinating when you take the Bible at face value in the historical accounts that it gives. It really leads to some very unexpected places. And so here at the BC Messenger, we do believe in the historicity of the ancient Old Testament. It is true. It was true. And it is true in the real world. So this includes everything from Noah's flood to the long lifespans recorded in Genesis to even manna in the wilderness and to Jericho being a real city with real walls that fell, and a whole lot more in between. So these things have relevance even to our lives, even in 2023. Yes, they do. And, you know, we bring this message anywhere we can. Uh, As the communications team, that's that's our job. Wherever there's an open door, in churches, on Twitter, social media, at the county fair, those type of events. Uh, through online videos, anywhere that God gives us an, uh, an opportunity. So again, we here, we're starting a brand new season, a new year, completing one year of podcasting. So today is a special anniversary edition. So in just a few moments, uh, Dr. Ardsma covering a variety of topics pertaining to his decades of research work at the interface of science and the Bible. You know, I was reminiscing back Steve, thinking over our first year of podcasting. And it came to my memory, you know, when when this podcast started, we did not even know that it was going to be a podcast. No, we didn't. Actually, we were starting it as, what were we doing? An email? 
Yes. We were going to do an email It was going to be an email newsletter from the communications department here. We thought we would try to summarize different aspects of the work by email and send that out to the list uh, that we had at the time. And then uh, I think you did, Steve, said, hey, let's make an audio version of this email so people can listen to it. And that'll be an easy thing to do as an added bonus for people. So we did that. We just read the the email newsletter, uh, and I interjected one or two brief comments. I couldn't help myself, but that was all it took, you know. And then um, it was a, we had this great new idea. We're going to we're going to put what we want to say on audio and put it out there on the internet. Yeah, and great do something idea. new. Something. <laughs> wait a minute. People are already doing this. It's called a podcast. Uh, right. you know? Okay. It didn't take long to realize what we really needed was um, a podcast and maybe supported by a, an email format. Right. But by month number two, which would have been September of last year, uh, it had officially become the BC Messenger podcast. And right. uh, our older kids were right because they had been telling us um, do a podcast, podcast, mom and podcast, dad. podcast, podcast. Can we, can we do a how do you do a podcast? Well, it's not hard. You learn quickly. You know, let me mention this since this has come up. Um, a number of folks listening may listen through. They may have found it through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. And we are on some of those platforms if you'd like to listen that way. But we do have a nice email that goes out, and that is how this started. Um, the email has all kinds of pictures and links and. It's some really nice, really nice show notes that yes, go out. Yes, it's a visual format of the podcast right. and that you can find easily online through the email. Right. And every month when we do our podcast, we send an email out to those who are subscribed that way. It's a very simple email with a link. We've been encouraged to see that we have listeners all around the world who are yeah. tuning in to this very unique content. Well, as promised, we're offering some special activities and giveaways in this episode as part of our one-year celebration. Hey, how would you like an Amazon gift card? Ooh, I would. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but we can't win them. You can. So the first thing we're offering is an Amazon gift card if you are willing to fill out an online survey. And this is a very simple survey. The first 30 respondents are going to receive a $10 Amazon gift card emailed to you. Now, here's another bonus with this. You have a chance to add on an additional $5 to the gift card, making it a total of $15. There's a, a bonus section. The survey is mainly asking for your feedback and input about the podcast, a few questions. So as a listener, it would only take a few minutes to fill that out. And then again, if you fill the last two questions out, then you can get an extra $5. So how do I get to this online survey, Steve? Good question. The link to the survey will be in the show notes. If you get the email from us and you're on the email list, it's right there. You'll see very clearly. And if you listen to it on uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify, whatever you listen to on, the link will be there as well. Secondly, we are offering a very unusual sale this month. All of our listeners should be aware that part of the research work here has been the discovery of two previously unknown vitamins, uh, Dr. Ardsma's anti-aging vitamins, which comes directly out of the 
record in Genesis of the super longevity recorded there and then his work done on Noah's flood. It all correlates together. And we do have the discovery of the anti-aging vitamins. Uh, We have never offered an online sale before on these vitamins. So as part of our celebration, we are offering a buy one, get one free sale on the anti-aging vitamins. The sale will end at midnight on August the 9th. 9th. So you have a week to take advantage of this, place an order for a regular bottle, and you will receive two bottles. It's a great way to stock up or to share the vitamins with somebody else in your life. Truly, everybody needs these to be able to be as healthy um, as they possibly can and sustain their productive years of life as long as possible. And so how do I get this free bottle of vitamins? Again, just go to the show notes. You will see a link there to, to the purchase page and easily can make your purchase through PayPal as a guest or through your PayPal account and get two bottles for the price of one. Well, joining us in the studio this month is Dr. Ardsma. And again, we're excited about this. This has been pre-recorded. Uh, Dr. Ardsma came into the studio, I guess it was a few last days week, ago, last yes. week, and recorded. And unfortunately, our equipment wasn't doing everything it should have been doing. We captured the interview just fine. And you can hear it just fine. It's just not the quality we had hoped to capture. So you might have to reach down there and turn your volume up a little bit to to hear the entire thing. But I just wanted to mention that as we go into it, you'll definitely hear a little difference in the audio. Uh, But again, you should be able to hear everything just fine. All right. Well, let's go into the interview. Uh, Jennifer actually hosts this and interviews her father, uh, Dr. Ardsma. So Jennifer... Here we go. You and your dad, Dr. Ardsma, on this special one-year anniversary interview. All right. We are very happy to have Dr. Ardsma with us in the studio today. We are celebrating our one-year anniversary of the podcast. And so after a year, it's about time that we heard from Dr. Ardsma himself. So we're very happy to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Well, you're most welcome. Hope you don't make it an annual event. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking once a year would be about right for you to uh, venture over here and join us, but we're glad to have you. Yeah, nice to be here. And I do have a list of questions. We haven't reviewed these ahead of time. Dr. Ardsman does not know what is going to be asked. And really, I should just say, Dad. Dad does not know what's going to be asked. First of all, to just get us started here... Share with us what you are working on in the research right now. Well, we have always got multiple uh, parallel tracks going at any given time. So we have aging research, which divides into a theoretical component with a lot of writing. And we have a... um, experimental component track, which has to do with a lot of mice. And um, at the present time, we have mm, three or four different mice experiments that are underway. And um, at the moment, I guess the most exciting thing in the rodent lab is that we have had um, 
a um, pair of mice can give birth to our first litter of mice in the lab in some years. We've done this in the past, but um, there are a lot of interesting questions with aging that need to be addressed uh, in regard to what happens prior to birth uh, once you start taking Dr. Hartsmith's anti-aging vitamins. Um, what does that do to the lifespan of mice if they are getting vitamins even while they are still in the gestation? Right. Um, then there is some ongoing root of the exodus research at the present time. That takes quite a bit of investigation time, reading um, on the internet, reading papers, reading archaeology papers, um, archaeology books, um, encyclopedias, and so forth. That's been especially rewarding the last little while and been quite a lot of fun. When I say fun, I have to say that properly. I had a friend once who, um, an older man, who said every time that he uh, wrote a book, his wife said it was worse than having a baby. And <laughs> I think that's, that's sort of apt in a way. Every time you get into a research project, uh, it's strenuous and it kind of takes a bite out of you before it's all said and done. Um, but at the same time, it's exhilarating and rewarding to make uh, new discoveries. And here we're discovering things that have been hidden for over 5,000 years and, or nearly 5,000 years. And, um, and that's, you know, that's quite a privilege to be able to uncover things that have been hidden so long. On the route of the Exodus. So you're referring to discovering the sites uh, leading up to Mount Sinai after the Israelites left Egypt and we've been talking quite a bit in the communications department that seven out of the 11 have been identified mm -hmm. and this has never previously been done before. So I agree with you. It's a very exciting part of the research and something every time a new piece comes out that is thrilling. And it's a little bit different from the aging research because it's more of a quick return, I guess you could say. Yes. Well, see, this topic now is very, you might say, mature. I think you've used the example in the past of uh, research is kind of like putting a puzzle together. And um, something like aging is a, a million piece puzzle. And something like the root of the Exodus, that's probably a hundred thousand piece puzzle. Okay. They're, they're all very hard puzzles. But yeah. uh, what happens is as you get more and more of the pieces in place, it becomes easier and easier to get other pieces in place. Right. And so the um, rate of discovery uh, increases as you go on in time. And we've been doing this uh, root of the Exodus uh, you know, it got interrupted what a couple of decades back uh, because we had to really give aging research priority because of the implications for 
um, longevity and health and people's lives. Right. Uh, quite an ethical uh, mandate there to to do that uh, ahead of the root of the exodus stuff. But uh, while we were spending those decades working on aging, the uh, internet got better and better and Google Maps, for example, got better and better. And it all turned out rather well because a lot of resources are available now that were not available a couple decades back, making it easier to sure. get the pieces in place. Um, it's kind of funny in a way that um, as we do this research, Almost uh, none of the um, identification of biblical sites and places, almost none of the map has been gotten right. Like beginning with Mount Sinai, what's kind of humorous is that I think practically every mountain in the whole of the Sinai Peninsula has been, uh, has been postulated to be Mount Sinai. And I know there's some over... Uh, over in Saudi Arabia and so forth uh, that have been more recently postulated to be Mount Sinai. So a very high percentage of mountains in the area have been postulated uh, to be the true Mount Sinai, and uh, they were all wrong. Uh, This is, it's kind of, I'm saying it's kind of humorous in a way (laughs) that so many should um, should be pointed to and yet they're all wrong. The true Mount Sinai, I think, would never have been uh, located, uh, if you don't get the chronology right, partly because we have this idea in our heads that whatever happens biblically has to be uh, extraordinary and has to have an extraordinary appearance. You know, surely God would make it to be better than Hollywood, you know. <laughs> and um, Mount, the true Mount Sinai is actually a very modest uh, mountain. Um, it's not the sort of thing that catches your fancy. We did have a podcast listener told us recently, uh, we asked him if he had any comments on our last episode, and he said, I'm still stuck back where you said Mount Sinai is a low-lying mountain. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. <laughs> so so you're right, because it's never what we expect, and that is the way God works so often. Right. I, I had a person write to me when I first found the that Mount Yerham was uh, Mount Sinai, and he was skeptical. And uh, he said, you know, well, uh, this site that's being proposed over in, I think, Saudi Arabia has a blackened top. What does the top of your mountain look like? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, my mountain has a big crater at the top. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, it appears to be that the whole summit of the mountain was blown away when God descended on the mountain in fire. So whatever might have been there originally, making it a higher, perhaps a little more yes. uh, spectacular of a mountain, was blown up, blown away right. at that point. That's a very good point. Whatever we're seeing now, the Bible does tell us there was quite a bit of um, dramatic activity at the mountain while the Israelites were there, including loud noises and smoke and fire. So... That's correct. We shouldn't assume that the top of the mountain that we see today is what was there when they arrived. Right. At the the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, I'm going to move into some territory about Noah's flood because I do find that a lot of people have a high interest in 
the topic of Noah's flood, which, um, of course, you have dated to 3520 BC and published a book with that title, Noah's Flood Happened, 3520 BC, I think in 2015, um, if I'm right on that date. So when we engage with people on the subject of Noah's Flood, there's a lot of things that they want to question and ask about. So let's start with this one. Uh, What do you say to people who want to use Noah's Flood as an explanation for everything? such as large canyons out west? Um, the, um, I'm a chronologist, and it really is chronology which sinks, absolutely sinks uh, such an idea. Uh, now, as long as you are an anarchist in regard to chronology, then you can get away with the idea that the flood did everything that that you can possibly imagine. But as soon as you apply normal uh, chronological tools to uh, dating these different events, you're talking about things like the Grand Canyon um, and it being carved out and volcanic lavas flowing into the canyon uh, and across the canyon and that kind of thing. Uh, as soon as you start to apply normal chronometers to the rocks and the uh, grand scheme, unifying everything with the flood uh, fails. That's not, not what happened in real history and not what happened in virtual history. So what would I normally say? The problem is that most people don't um, have a whole lot of personal background in chronology. And we think of chronology as being kind of dry. Uh, Chronology is just how you get dates for past events. The events don't come with a date tag on them. You know, if you go to the Grand Canyon and you look at, say, the Vishnu Schist there or some other formation and you ask, how old is that? Uh, what's the proper date for when that was formed? Um, there's no date tag there. You have to somehow figure out using some physical dating method or other uh, how old that thing is. The problem of establishing dates for things is something that most of us don't have to grapple with. We come with a nice birth certificate, so we have our dates assigned right, right on the beginning and and then we can just kind of calculate from date of birth what how old we are at a given time, really easy. Well, you have the same basic process with any kind of dating of any event in the past. Uh, the problem is it doesn't come with a date tag, and so you have to somehow establish that, that important starting point to figure out how old something is. With the dating of the flood... Uh, I spent quite a lot of my early years in Bible science research dating that event itself to figure out when it had happened. Now, one of the interesting things about chronology is that when you have a catastrophe, uh, those tend to be the easiest things to date. 
For example, when Mount St. Helens blew up some years ago, it um, absolutely covered over a whole bunch of forests that were growing on the side of the mountain with ash burying them. And uh, so you could today, presumably you could go back to Mount St. Helens, you could dig into that ash, you could find some remaining uh, wood from trees that were under the ash, buried by the ash. Uh, you could date that wood and then thereby figure out the date of the explosion. Whenever you have a catastrophe, it kind of stops a lot of processes that were going and it starts a whole bunch of new ones up. And you can usually use one or more of those processes then to figure out when that catastrophe happened. Well, for people who believe that the flood did everything in Earth history, laid down all the fossils and all the strata and all of that, the, the deal is then the flood should be the easiest thing in the world to date. Back when I was younger, I was of a similar persuasion that the flood must have done everything uh, as a result of reading Henry Morris's and John Whitcomb's book, The Genesis Flood. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent probably eight years of my life um, working on the problem of what is the proper date of the flood. And all the while that I held to the idea that the flood had done everything, all these geological strata and everything, uh, I could not get a, a reproducible date. I couldn't get one that was functional in that scenario. Eventually, what happened was I came to understand that the model of the flood that you have greatly affects uh, your ability to date that thing. Because anything that didn't really happen can't be dated at all. I think we've talked about this before. Yes. Uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, really very difficult to fix a date on that <laughs> event. Um, <laughs> cannot be done. But, so you have to have something that actually happened in real history in order to be able to date it reliably. Well, the flood happened in real history, but it didn't happen that way. It happened in a different way. Historically, you've had two groups of people, uh, those who kind of minimized the flood down to something very local or sometimes almost nothing at all. And then the other group that maximized the flood so that it was responsible for everything. And uh, well, wouldn't you know it, I think God has a sense of humor, and it, the true flood comes out to be about in the middle between okay. those two. <laughs> okay. um, it's it's a hemispherical uh, flood. The waters from the southern hemisphere uh, came up into the northern hemisphere, flooding all the continents. Uh, that's kind of a halfway in between a, <laughs> um, a normal uh, conception of a global flood and the normal conception of a local flood. So that leads into right into this next question then. Somebody asked this. It's pretty easy to say that if there was a global flood or a hemispherical flood, there would be a datable horizon in each and every published core sample. So the attitude coming back very often is it should be so obvious to every scientist who's ever done core sampling, I'm assuming this is ice cores or whatever they do. I'm also wondering that, what kind of cores you're referring to. Okay. The prevailing response is, 
that at 3520 BC, how come we everybody just doesn't know that in all the research that's been done, that there's this obvious flood, you know, a flood, a flood, like all the scientists are saying, man, there was some major event right back here at 3500. And since they're not saying that, then the evidence must not be there. Right. Uh, now, the problem of that is that when I first uh, got to the place where I actually could date the flood and found that the flood had happened 3520 BC, at that point, the ability to look at what I call uh, physical r reservoirs uh, that have chronological information with them opened up. Uh, so one such rev reservoir might be considered to be like tree rings. Trees grow rings and you can get tree ring series from living and dead trees that go back thousands of years. Uh, and, and another one is uh, sediments. And so if you're doing tree rings, you core the tree with a drill and you get out a tree core, which shows the rings uh, of the tree by just taking a little pencil-like core out of the tree. Uh, if you're doing sediments in the ocean or sediments in the lake, then you have a bigger drill that you put down through. If it's a lake, they wait until it freezes in the winter. They go out there on the ice. They first core through the uh, ice on top of the lake, and then they put their drill right down into the bottom of the lake, and they take a core of sediments from the bottom of the lake. And uh, they bring it up, and they did this at Elk Lake, and this was the lake that I first looked at in order to try to understand, is there a signature of the flood present in this sedimentary core from Elk Lake or not? Now, Elk Lake is in uh, Minnesota, and so it's in the U.S. Previous to this, I had found that the flood was clearly evidenced in the old world over in Palestine and surrounding countries uh, through the archaeology that was available from those countries and in all other ways as well. But so the interesting question, this was before I had understood that the flood was uh, hemispherical in extent. The interesting question was, would we find evidence of the flood 3520 BC in the Elk Lake sedimentary cores. And I uh, worked on that for quite a while, and uh, they had published a really nice volume, the uh, Geological Survey of America, and um, of a bunch of different scientists that had made a lot of different measurements on these cores in a lot of different ways. I wasn't taking the cores myself. Uh, this was all very nicely published. Well, the very first thing you expect, of course, uh, is that the flood would have done something unusual at Elk Lake. Hard to say exactly what when you don't have a, a fixed model of the flood in your head. The simplest ex uh, expectation would be that the uh, flood, any flood uh, in the area, would put debris into the water and that debris would fall out as sediments onto the bottom of the lake. And you would end up with unusual amount of sediment if you had this lake under a flood of water for uh, the better part of a year, the way that the um, Bible describes Noah's flood. Uh, so that might be the, the most obvious thing to look for. Was there a lot of extra sedimentation? Uh, 
this, again, this uh, data from Elk Lake had been looked at by quite a few scientists, very capable people. And um, so I started out by saying, well, okay, let's see if we can date when we would expect something anomalous to have happened in this course. Now, these sediments, they are banded, light and dark. Um, and that's because in the winter, there's not so much sedimentation going on. And in the summer, it's very fast. And there are blooms of microbes that live in the lake uh, that have little shells around them. And that stuff uh, grows in the spring, blooms in the spring, and then kind of falls out of the water column down to the bottom. And you wind up year by year with something like a millimeter thick sedimentary layer. And so you can count these layers and um, figure out, you count back to the surface and figure out how long ago some particular layer was laid down. Also, there's a certain amount of uh, organic um, debris in that gets trapped in the sediments. And you can check your layer counting by doing radiocarbon dating on those uh, organic uh, things like leaves or twigs or something that you might find down there. And um, you, you, you do that and you can, between the two of them, you can find out, yeah, okay, I've got the chronology basically right. So I did all that work first to find out where this, uh, the flood should show up. And wouldn't you know it, um, th this lake has like 10,000 years worth of, uh, of sediment uh, layers on the bottom. And uh, wouldn't you know it, that right there, right at the date of the flood, you have this very curious section of sediments, which all the scientists were saying lasted for about 600 years. Uh, really curious area. The only anomaly in the entire 10,000 years, and it is right there at the date of the flood. Mm. So to get back to your, your viewer's question, the truth is that they spend a lot of time in the Elk Lake a book that talks about all of their results, all of their data and everything, they spend a lot of time diligently explaining away this strange anomaly in the middle of the data. Huh. They do that because they, quotes, know that there's no such thing as a flood. Uh, Noah's flood, that's just silly uh, Bible stuff. That doesn't have anything to do with the real world, you know. Yeah. And so they diligently, diligently, they and the, the, the explanations of this thing are self-contradictory from one scientist to the next. Even, even you can restrict to one scientist at, at, at some times, and he's saying things that are self-contradictory. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it really can't be explained without the idea that, hey, Elk Lake was under a great deal of very cold, very salty water for a significant period of time. Unless you have that uh, as an explanation, and that's what Noah's flood did, that brought the ocean water in over the continents. Ocean water is cold. It's only like four degrees C or something. I mean, that would be just above freezing. 
at the surface, but down at the bottom of the ocean, it's cold. The water is saline, and so it's rather dense, and so it sinks down to the bottom. And any fresh water that was in Elk Lake prior to the flood would have been flushed out by the cold saline ocean water that was coming up in there during the flood. And the the lake shows this in several different ways. It shows that it was cold and it was saline. And all of that uh, during this anomalous period of time, it was that way. And the scientists bend over backwards and, and, and everything to explain it all away. They don't explain it ever. They try to explain it away. Um, it's an, and of course, today the big thing is all about climate change. So they were all very excited to say that this was a climate change anomaly in the middle of Elk Lake. Had nothing to do with climate change. It was Noah's flood had done exactly what we were expecting. So I was able then to say, yeah, well, uh, Noah's flood actually happened there in the north um, and altered the sediments at the bottom of Elk Lake. Well, I had exactly the same phenomenon happen again in regard to ice cores, because once I knew that Noah's flood was present in Elk Lake, then the interesting question was, if you flood the northern hemisphere with ocean water, it is very cold and very saline, but there's a lot of glaciers up in the northern uh, latitudes, Uh, And those glaciers would then either uh, be submerged under a very high column of ocean water, or those glaciers would break free from their beds. They're normally frozen to the rock beds. They would break free and then they would float. Uh, So here again, we're expecting Noah's flood to make a really big difference to these glaciers compared to their normal accumulation of snow layers year by year by year. Um, Again, the glaciers have thousands of years worth of uh, layers in them. You can again count back the layers to figure out how old something is. So I did the same thing again and I said, well, what do we find in regard to the glaciers? What was happening with them? Well, there were a couple of small ones. Um, Well, when I say small, they're massive, but they're small compared to the really big ones, like the glacier on Greenland is a huge glacier. But there was a smaller one on Devon Island, and I chose that one for study. And I found that it had had remained uh, glued to its bed or frozen to its bed, and uh, that the flood had come in and had melted it back from the surface. Again, the date is perfect. You get it melted back at the time of the flood, and then it began to regrow again uh, after the flood was over, because once again, you start getting snow accumulating year by year on these glaciers. That's what makes a glacier is the snow accumulation on the top. Uh, And there again, I found exactly the same phenomenon. The scientists who had seen this before I had ever seen it, they collected the data, they took the cores, and they said, boy, this is awful strange. Seems to have been melted back on the top. And what in the world ever did that, you know? And, um, And they talk about, well, I think it must have been some kind of tectonic event. And I don't know what in the world they were trying to say because some tectonic event can be a lot of different things. 
but they had no rational explanation. They basically, what happens every time that data is found showing Noah's flood, the real Noah's flood, is that data doesn't fit with the standard paradigm that Noah's flood never happened. And therefore, the scientist has this problem. They want to publish their data. They're not thinking about Noah's flood at all. Uh, and they don't want the publication to center on some kind of an unknown anomaly. So the anomaly tends to get brushed aside or explained away somehow uh, because it does not fit the reigning paradigm. The reigning paradigm is that ever since the last glaciation, things have been pretty much the same as they are today. And actually Noah's flood happened 3520 BC. That's only like five and a half thousand years ago and or less. And that, that date is in the, is about halfway along between when the last glacier, hap, glacier happened and when, where we are today. Okay. Clearly it was a global catastrophic ca uh, event and how do you fit this global catastrophic event that you do not allow for? How do you fit its data into your paradigm, which says everything's been the same all through that time? Right. Well, it doesn't fit. They brush it away. Um, the person who asked that question, they really should go and just trace the same footsteps that I went with Elk Lake and with um, Devon Island. Um, I think I've written both of these up pretty clearly with references in yes. the biblical chronologist. And um, it's really quite shocking to see how easily uh, data, which should be startling, and because what did melt the glaciers back up right. there? <laughs> right. um, I mean, that's pretty startling stuff, and it clearly hasn't happened since that time. Something highly unusual happened up there. Um, and you would think that everybody would be jumping on this and saying, There's, we're going to learn something new that we never knew before. Uh, but no, it just kind of gets swept under the rug and on we go with the standard paradigm. Right. So, because, the, pre, so the preconceived idea of the past 8,000, 10,000 years of history is shaping their uh, interpretation or the way that they want to handle the data that they are seeing. That's correct. Right. And that, that can be a problem amongst different groups. Um, but it's interesting that it happens in secular science as well. So do you think there isn't anybody really who would say, would suggest this could have been a major flooding event? No, no, nothing to do with a major flooding event for either of them. Um, the reason for that is that the idea of a major flooding event, a hemispherical flood, is not in their realm of possibility. Sure. Uh, so but even a, a smaller, a regional, a, a large regional flood or something. No, no, nothing even. Again, you really have to bring the oceans over the Northern Hemisphere. You have to bring the water from the Southern Hemisphere up 
into the Northern Hemisphere. The Northern Hemisphere has most of the continental mass. The Southern Hemisphere has most of the water, a lot of the water. And so when you arrange to cause the water from the Southern Hemisphere to flow up into the Northern Hemisphere, you do wind up submerging all of the continents is what happens. Uh, not every last square inch of the continents, but 90-something percent of the continents are submerged at that point. And like I said, at Elk Lake, you have to have cold saline water. And that's not going to happen with a regional flood. Sure, You're okay. going to get some kind yeah. of freshwater flood. Yeah. See? Okay. That's so interesting. So do you think there's ever been anybody in secular science who has stepped back and tried to take in, you know, the big picture and said, man, there sure are a lot of anomalies at 3500 BC and somebody should really investigate and see what went on globally or, you know, within the earth at that date. We don't have anyone that we know of who's who's put forth such a suggestion at this point. No, it's hilarious. I mean, you can keep going. The archaeology stuff is especially um, telling. Um, again, the uh, I first located the flood in uh, secular archaeology because I knew the date was 3520 BC. We had gotten to the place where we could date things very reliably using radiocarbon dating, tree ring calibrated radiocarbon dating, all the old nonsense about there's all these assumptions you have to watch out for and everything. We're all kind of swept away by tree ring calibrated radiocarbon dating. And uh, when we dated the flood to 3520 BC and then went back into the archaeological record of the history of Palestine, then the uh, flood became very apparent very quickly. What ended up happening was uh, I'm reading what the archaeologists are finding and saying about the archaeology in Palestine, and they are saying, well, there was this period called the Chalcolithic, and um, the strange thing about the Chalcolithic is that the people who lived in that period, um, they were very artistic and creative, and they made quite a few advances in a number of areas. Um, and then uh, suddenly uh, they all disappeared. And it's like as if civilization started over again. And many of the advances that had been made were lost. And... Um, uh, had to be rediscovered. Well, you know, you don't have to read that very much. You only see that once in archaeology anywhere. And, <laughs> right. and there it is. It's right at the date of the flood, 3520 BC. And here again, the archaeologists are saying it's, it's like as if some natural disaster happened. They don't specify that I'm aware of, and that I recall what that natural disaster was. But they you know, they, they are saying it's like there was a natural disaster. They don't say, has anybody else looked at this date and time in any other archaeological areas to yeah. see whether... Well, um, I have, and since, I mean, right. since their stuff. <laughs> right. And, you know, you go over into Ireland, which is a ways away from Israel, and uh, there they have Cage of Fields uh, site, which is an international... Uh, heritage site where they have uh, stone walls that are buried under peat uh, that has accumulated over 
thousands of years. And the stone walls saying that once upon a time there were people living there who were evidently farming and uh, seemed to have had cattle. Um, and they had fields and the, the plow marks uh, are still in the fields once you peel back the peat. Oh you'll, have, you'll have you'll have some feet of peat growth on top of this. But once you peel that back, you'll find that the soil still shows plow marks. It's like the people were working there one day and they were gone the next. And huh. then the place overgrew with, with peat moss. And stuff. Yeah. Uh, again, when did this happen? Uh, 3520 BC, um, at the date of the flood. And what do they say? Well, they say, well, it looks like the people that were living there, uh, they must have moved on because the, you know, they exhausted the fertility of the soil. Or, you know, some such explanation. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, so all of the, the fact that all of these things are happening 3520 BC, when you go looking for them, you have to have your chronology, right? You have to know how to do chronology, uh, how to date things accurately. But once you know how to do that, and that's, that is my training and my background, um, when you apply this to these different sites all over the world, uh, you keep finding 3520 BC, something obviously happened. Well, it's a little bit coincidental that the Bible would have this history recorded of this great massive flood that lasted for nearly a year, right at the same time that we're finding all of these anomalies uh, all over the globe. Yes, and I think it's also very sobering because it's very real world, you know, to talk about what were these people doing, what types of civilization did they have? What can we learn about them? And then they, and then they're gone. You know, so God's judgment in that flood becomes much more real than just saying, "Oh, well, once water covered the whole world, and there were these animals in a boat." You know, and I mean that's the bit part of the biblical story. Yes, those elements, but but it's it's a, it's different to uh to read the findings about real people who had real families and right. real towns and and God brought this judgment and that's yeah, and very sobering you're looking at the artwork that they left behind uh, what that has been dug up by the archaeologists you know uh they like to paint the calcolithic people in Israel like to paint their walls with geometric and other designs uh quite artistic uh, with different colors, and uh, that stuff can still all be found. Yeah, you really get begin to get a feeling that, yeah, these were real people. Uh, this is not fairy tale land, folks. Yeah, right. uh, this happened in the real world. Right. And when God judges in the real world, it is not funny. We've just, of course, gone through that same lesson in regard to the Red Sea crossing and seeing how God judged Pharaoh and all of these soldiers who were with him and Egypt as a nation during the Exodus and during specifically that Red Sea crossing, which we have seen was not some kind of coincidental strange weather that happened to just drown Pharaoh when he was in the wrong place at the wrong right. time. The biblical history of this thing makes it perfectly clear that God's purpose was to judge uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh had repeatedly 
uh, hardened his heart against God and against Moses and said, who's God? You know, who, who is God that I should obey him to Moses? And, and, and Moses had repeatedly said, you, you know, there's going to be, you're going to get in trouble for this. There's going to be discipline uh, exercised by God on you and the nation because of your refusal to do what God's telling you to do. He's telling you point blank, do this, and yeah. you refuse to do it. And the, the terrible plague would come and Pharaoh would finally say, okay, I give up. Um, I'm sorry, uh, make the plague go away and I'll be better. And then every time he would go back to doing the same thing all over again. And it happened time after time. After time. It gets to the place where eventually you say, you know, God is being really long suffering here. This is not a very nice guy to begin with. Right. He's not being Mercy. very nice to the slaves and Israelites. And um, uh, God is really being long-suffering, but God's long-suffering runs out eventually. Uh, we like to talk about God's grace that feels really comfortable to most of us and praise God for his grace, but he's not 100% grace. And you come face-to-face -face with this fact Mm -hmm. uh, when you realize that the text of the the narrative of the Red Sea crossing is quite clear that God deliberately baited Pharaoh out of Egypt and baited Pharaoh into that body of water so that he could drown him and the army in that spot. Uh, it was not something that was just too bad. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was exactly where God wanted him to be at that time. And God judged him uh, in drowning him and his army. Again, God's judgment is real. It's not a pretty thing. Uh, we need to take it seriously and not be, be misled into supposing that we can live just any old way we please and get away with it. And God will surely uh, turn and you know look away when we're misbehaving yes agreed all right well it's been very good i think our listeners are going to benefit greatly from it the truth is that um, scientific research and putting the bible together with science a uh, very very time consuming process and very intense when you get into solving one of these puzzles i've always said that you can do one of two things you can either uh, talk about what you don't really know, or you can try to find out the answers to the things you don't really know. Yeah, uh, You can't really do both yeah. um, effectively, which is why I'm so thankful for you, uh, Jennifer and Steve, uh, taking up this task. It's a full-time task of communicating what has been found, uh, but I still feel totally bound to finding more of what yet uh, is not being understood properly. We would really like the evidence to be not so overwhelming. That understates what I want to say. The evidence is already so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I want it to be atomic bombish. Can I say it that way? That when it finally hits, when people finally wake up, uh, especially the uh, academic world, who I feel for. They're very, very lost, and they don't understand 
how lost they are. When they finally see it, it will be so overwhelming that they will right away simply say, okay, we surrender. <laughs> we would like to begin to think in this new paradigm. Um, That'll be a wonderful day. That would be wonderful. Well, it's our privilege to be able to uh, bridge this information to people while you're so busy getting it figured out and documented down. It's it's our great privilege to be the bridge so that people on the other end can receive it. And you're certainly, uh, we have no lack of things to talk about and you keep adding more to it. So it looks like we're going to be busy for a long time to come. Well, you know, not every scientist has the privilege of having his oldest daughter and son-in-law so uniquely, uh, perfectly suited to this gigantic task of communicating to basically lay people some of the uh, wonderful things that God's doing in Bible science at the present time. I've said before, uh, I'll keep saying it, God's doing something unusual in our time. Aslan is on the move at present. Uh, I don't know what it is. I don't uh, profess to be a prophet or anything like that. Uh, but things are happening. And um, the very fact that you are where you are, very much <laughs> answer to prayer, very much a miracle story of its own. Um, yes, that's true. And, Thank um, you. And I, I'm saying God is, is doing something. He's doing something with you, with, doing something with Steve, um, whether you like it or not. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's kind of like with Jeremiah uh, or we're with Moses. Doing this. We're doing this. Right. Come along. <laughs> right. Moses right. is saying, God, I really don't want to do this. I'm yeah. no good at this. And, right. And God says, don't tell me what you're good at. I'll tell you. Do this. Yes. 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 Well, it's been a great journey, and I feel like we're just, just getting this train moving out of the station, you know, as far as bringing this very fascinating and just vital work to people's attention. So it's yeah. great to be a part of it. As we wrap up another month of the BC Messenger podcast, as always, we thank you for joining us. And thank you for participating this yes. month in our special activities. Don't forget to go to that survey link and take a few minutes, fill that out, take advantage of the special sale. And, you know, as you think back over the different topics discussed, these are big topics and big questions that people have in our world today. And maybe there's someone in your life that you would like to share this content with, a young person, um, somebody raised in the Christian faith who may be struggling with these types of questions, please send our content their way and consider what you can do to help share this message of truth. Yes, it is vital information, and it is our privilege to be the messengers for it, to be able to do what we can to put this word out, So, and we hope you'll take advantage of it. It is our constant prayer that God will use these truths to advance His kingdom in this world. Thank you for joining us this month. We will see you next month. See you in September.